Okay. <clears throat> Diane says we need to pick up some time here, so we're going to skip the one song and go right to our uh, message this morning. Good to have you here. We're going to continue our uh, series on encounters with Jesus that leave people surprised. And as we read them, maybe leave us surprised as well. So what I want to look at with you today is Matthew chapter 16. We'll call it a surprising rebuke. Well-known passage. Uh, follow along as we read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, uh, risen from the dead, obviously, because by this time uh, John the Baptist had his head chopped off. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. <clears throat> Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. <clears throat> then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So, uh, a surprising encounter and a surprising rebuke to Peter's, uh, or, or to Jesus' uh, chief apostle, or one of the the inner three circle, Peter, James, and John. So let's follow this through. It starts out with Jesus asking a question. Who do people say that I am? I think that's a question that comes to, uh, to everybody who gets close to Jesus at all. 
It's, it's always that question, who, who is he? Maybe it's asked directly, maybe it's asked indirectly just by the, the kind of person that he is. Who is it that speaks like this? So the crowds hear him and they say, uh, this man speaks with authority. The question is, how does he do that? He hasn't been to the schools. He hasn't trained under the, the rabbis. But he speaks with authority more than the other teachers that they are aware of. Who is he? Even his enemies come back from encounters with Jesus and they say, no man ever spoke like this man. So the question arises, who is he? People have been asking that, and so he says to his disciples, well, uh, what are they saying? And the common answer is that he's a prophet. A prophet is someone who, in the Israelite mind, the Jewish mind, prophet is somebody who uh, speaks uh, for God and speaks from God, speaks the Word of God. And when they hear Jesus speak, they hear the authority with which he speaks. People say, this, this is in that historic line of, of prophets. We've had these people going back to Samuel and, and Hosea and Jeremiah and Elijah. People who spoke for God and spoke from God. And, and that's, that's Jesus. Can we identify him any more explicitly? Well, there's, there's uh, various speculations. Some think he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod thought that. You know, he, he had John put to death in prison. And then later he heard reports about Jesus and he starts thinking, John's back. And then some say Elijah. The close of the Old Testament said that before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, God would send Elijah. You know, the guy that got caught up into heaven is coming back. That's Malachi. So some people hear Jesus and they think, well, this might be the guy that's getting us ready for the wrap-up of the ages. Some people say Jeremiah. How, how they came on that, we, we have no idea or one of the prophets, but he's someone who speaks for God. That's what the people are saying. But Jesus says to his disciples, but, but who, do you, who do you say I am? And uh, Peter has the ready answer that I think all of them would have responded with. The answer is, you're the Messiah. You're the king we've been waiting for, the one the prophets spoke of, the one who would come and restore all things, who would turn Israel back to the Lord, who would defeat Israel's enemies, who would inherit the throne of David and establish a kingdom that would last forever. That's who you are. And Jesus has this great reply. Peter's the one who speaks for the group. Blessed are you, Simon, uh, because God himself has revealed this to you. 
And, you know, that's a significant point to make in passing, that when you get the answer right to who Jesus is, you can never take credit for it. So, Peter, you can't take credit for this. My Father has revealed, He's given you that insight. And they've been working off that insight for a while because that's, you know, that's the first thing that Andrew says to Peter back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We found the Messiah. So Peter and the rest, they're, they're convinced of that. This is, this is the king that they have been waiting for. They haven't had a king for 600 years. Peter, you are blessed with this knowledge that the Father has given you. And your conviction and your leadership is such that I have named you, you're, you're Simon, but, but I've given you this nickname, Cephas in Aramaic, which in Greek gets translated to Peter. It's Petras, a stone, a rock. <clears throat> Peter is rocky. Right? That's, that's what Jesus says. As soon as he meets him, gives him that nickname. He sees in Peter this leadership quality, I think. So he says here, you are Peter. You're a rock man. And on this rock, and there's a big debate about what the rock is, right? Uh, I, I think it's Peter. He's playing off the name. You're Peter. You're the rock man. And I'm going to build my future congregation, my assembly of the true Israelites. I'm going to build it around you. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And remember, the kingdom is what Jesus has been promising. He's been preaching about it for a couple of years. The kingdom is coming. He teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And now, Peter, on the basis of the fact that you have correctly understood who I am and you've been following me, and you have this leadership quality about you, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. What you open will be open in heaven. And what you close will have been already closed in heaven. Say, well, where did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, Certainly seems like it happens on the day of Pentecost and the days that follow. Peter is the first Christian preacher, and in preaching the good news about Jesus and challenging the Jewish people, saying to them, you through your leaders have crucified the Messiah, but God raised him up from the dead and has appointed him both Lord and Messiah. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, you need to repent and believe and follow Jesus. That's what you need to do. And in so doing, 
He opens the way into the kingdom, announcing the good news of salvation in Jesus. Well, we can debate whether that's the right reading of this text. If you want to do that, you can come to the follow-up class, Sunday school, right? But that's my take on what's happening here. So, Peter, the rock man, has has the right answer to the question, and he's given this powerful position of opening the way into the kingdom. But now is when this whole encounter gets really interesting. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, you got that right, and you're blessed for knowing that. And Peter, you're going to announce this and open the kingdom. But then he orders his disciples not to tell anyone what Peter has just declared. Peter's declared it from God. Now Jesus says, don't tell anybody about that. Instead, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Well, how does that work? And why does Jesus say that? And why does it lead to such surprise on the part of the disciples? And Let's think about this. Let, I'm going to call this the scandal of suffering. Uh, a scandal, you know, is something that embarrasses, uh, makes us ashamed, or at least it should. I mean, we're in such a shameless age that all kinds of things happen that... <clears throat> in previous generations, might embarrass folks, and today it's like, uh, okay, so what happened? But scandal has that notion about it, doesn't it, of something that is shameful, something that we shouldn't talk about, something that shouldn't take place. And what's the scandal here? The scandal is that the one that they've just confessed to be the Messiah the heir of David's throne, David, the the king who always won. This heir to the kingdom, as far as they can understand it, has just told them that he's going to suffer and be killed by the very people that should acknowledge him and welcome him. And that's scandalous because Peter and All the disciples know that the Messiah doesn't lose. I mean, all Jesus has to do is listen to the prophets that prophesy this coming kingdom when Israel will be restored in full freedom to its own land. And the enemies will be destroyed. 
In fact, all the nations, we're told, will, will come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. The victory is going to be complete. The Messiah wins the day. But Jesus doesn't seem to get that. There's a problem here. That's, it's scandalous that he would suggest that there's any agenda but the agenda of a winner. Now, in this, there's an assumption. See, I think as Christians, we don't feel this the way Peter and the apostles would have felt it. We don't feel this contradiction because we've heard the story of the cross so long, we've become uh, desensitized, maybe, is the way to say it. But we ought to pull this apart and think about the assumption that lies behind this. The Messiah is the one who's going to come and mend the world. He's going to mend what's wrong with Israel. But then he's really going to go beyond that. He's going, he's going to set the world to rights. He's going to bring judgment at the end of the age. He's going to raise the dead and separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And to do that, for Peter and the other disciples, there's, there's a basic assumption. Is this the right way to say it? The assumption is that the way to mend the world is by taking control. By exercising power. And that, that is just such a deeply ingrained assumption in us, isn't it? If we had the power, or if we could get the power and exercise it, we could fix the world. And, and we're still very much of that mind. I remember on the run-up to the last election, hearing a nationally televised preacher telling his congregation, if we vote in the right candidate, his candidate, we can save America. Now, I think that's actually blasphemy. I don't think we or any human being saves America or saves the world. But that's the, that's the assumption, see, if we can get power, we can fix things. And it's not just political power. We, we assume this in all kinds of ways. If we have the right technology, we can solve things. Right? We, we can fix the world. If we have the right education, we can bring about the world that we need. 
There's a, there's a messianic understanding that, that flows through American educational system, right? That education is, that's the solution. It's very deeply ingrained in us. And individually, we also think that. If we think, if we work a little bit harder, true, we've got problems, right? We, we admit that. We all need to be mended. Most of us, most of us will acknowledge that. It's not, it's not just the world, but yet it's, it's also us. I mean, I, I've got a few issues, you know. And, and I can deal with it if I really want to. Sometimes I don't want to, but, I, but if I want to, you know, I can work hard. I can solve my issues. I can deal with my addiction problems. It's not that bad. I can quit if I want to. And yeah, my, my, my marriage is struggling uh, but, you know, that's not really my responsibility primarily. It's, it's really the person I'm married to. Woo! I could tell you stories about that. I'm speaking hypothetically. <laughs> the assumption is that we are people who have a certain amount of power, and if we could get a little bit more, and we, we think there are ways that we could, that we could then mend ourselves and mend the world. And that goes, that goes way, way back. Remember that story in Genesis chapter 11 about the, the people in Babel that build the tower? They've got some new technology, making bricks. And with the new technology, they're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. We can do it. But the scandal that Jesus presents is that he doesn't endorse any of those ways. I grew up with Superman. What a story! Guy's got the power, you know. He's faster than a speeding locomotive. He can jump over tall buildings. And, and he can save us when we are in trouble. He can save the world because he has power. But that story really doesn't work as much as we're attracted to it. So Jesus talks about another way. It's the way of suffering as God's way to mend the world. And Peter is offended by that. You know, the, the English word scandal comes from a Greek word, sounds about the same, scandalon. And, and a scandalon is, is a stone that you trip over. You stub your toe. Maybe you fall fat, flat on your face and you're embarrassed. Oh, look what I've done. What's happened to me? I wasn't watching. So on and so forth. Yeah, there's a, a scandal here for Peter. The idea that the Messiah would suffer. That stumbles him. 
It offends him, and he rebukes Jesus for even thinking that way. <clears throat> and not only for Peter, but for the other apostles. And, and then, because it tells us when he was crucified, it says, Matthew says, that they were all scandalized by it. They were all stumbled. The Apostle Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, the suffering Savior, which to the Jews is a stumbling block, a scandal. And to the Greeks it's foolishness, which is another kind of stumbling block. <clears throat> when Peter speaks up and says, Lord, this, this can't be. I've read the script. I know how the play ends. There's no place in it for suffering and death. You're the winner. Peter then draws down this surprising rebuke. <clears throat> Jesus turns to him and says, uh, Peter, but, but he doesn't address him first as Peter. He addresses him as Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not understand the things of God. You are, Jesus says, you, Peter, are a stumbling block to me because in what you've just said, you've resurrected the devil's temptation from the beginning of my ministry. The devil who said, if you fall down and worship me, <clears throat> the ruler of this world, the one who has authority in this age, if you will worship me, I'll give you the kingdom for nothing. No suffering. And Jesus hears in the words of Peter once again that temptation to avoid the cross, to seize power, to be the winner. But Jesus says, no, this is the way it must be. That's if you go back in those verses when he speaks to his disciples. He says that the, the Son of Man must go, must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer. And he must be put to death. That's God's plan from the beginning. As they say, that's plan A and there is no plan B. So we're brought to this place of the cross. And this story that leads us to the death of the Messiah. <clears throat> you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in a Christian home. I hated hearing about the cross. For years, I hated the story because it, it was so sad, so horrific that a man would suffer like this. But what made it so much worse is that the story 
that I was asked to believe was that the man who suffered in this way suffered for me. And so I, I shut it out whenever I could. Or if somehow, you know, in a Christian home, we'd have preachers in and all the rest for dinner. And, and it seemed like inevitably this came up. <laughs> which, which it should, because this is the center of our faith, right? But I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to think. That sin was so deeply rooted in my life that the only way that it could be addressed was by the death of the Son of God. Seemed like there ought to be all sorts of other ways we could deal with sin, right? That we could fix ourselves up. That we could mend our brokenness. But Jesus says, no. It's the way of the cross. Today is Communion Sunday. And Communion is a good time because it calls us all back to this central reality that Jesus says, I must give up my life for you and for the world. You can't be mended apart from my death. The world can't be mended. The kingdom can't come unless I lay down my life. So, how is it with you? Are, are you like I was for those early years of my life? Are, are you a person who avoids hearing this and blots that out of your mind? Who says, no, I, I can work on it. I think I, can, I think I can solve these issues myself. Or are you someone who has come in faith to Jesus and said, I believe. I receive. I take life from you that flows out of your death and your resurrection. As we celebrate communion together, let's reflect on that. Aaron, will you come and lead us, please?